Jesus' little brother, right? Most likely Jesus' little brother. And what does that mean about James? It means that he grew up in a rural blue-collar family, right? Son of a carpenter. Grew up probably working with his hands. So James is a very practical sort of man, and he takes a very practical, hands-on approach to Christianity and to faith. This book is a book of action. It's a book for doers. It's a book for people who learn and grow by doing. James is also the pastor of the church at Jerusalem, and that church had been scattered because of persecution just across all of the Mediterranean. All of his people were gone. This book is a book that James wrote to his flock that had been scattered. They had suffered. So last week we began with this, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. And we're still really in the section that deals with difficulties and trials. The difficulties and trials of life, the adversities of life, they're inevitable. He says when you face them, not if, right? The question is not if they come, it's when they come. And once they come, the question is how will we respond to them? Will we respond with joy, knowing that God sends us trials in order to perfect us and mature us and cause us to grow? Or will we complain and blame God for the bad things in our hearts that come to the surface whenever we're under pressure? Trials reveal who we are. They reveal what we trust in. They draw our sins to the surface. Our impatience, our entitlement, our anger, our lack of self-control, our dependence on ease and comfort, the ways we're unwilling to trust God in our lives. Every little thing like that pushes us and presses us. I'm sure that the band and the setup crew this morning were under pressure. Half our setup crew is not here. Got pushed. Here's a question. What resources do you have to deal with the trials and difficulties of your life? What do you lean on or use when you're under pressure? Last week, James was teaching us that we have internal resources to draw on. Our character, our wisdom, or our lack thereof, our lack of character and our lack of wisdom. Internal resources. Are we steadfast? Can we endure? Do we have the wisdom to see the trials that we face for what they are? Can we trust God in the midst of them? Can we navigate those difficulties in a way that honors him? That was last week. This week we pick up where I think a lot of us as wealthy modern Americans tend to start. Not with our internal resources, but with our external resources. Do we have the means... in our grasp, in our hands, to change our circumstances, to change our situation, to make the trials just sort of disappear, to make them go away? Can we pay for things to get better? And if we can't do that, if we can't pay for things to get better or to go away, can we pay for distractions and things and comforts that would just make them easier to endure rather than trusting God? Some people don't have the resources to do that sort of thing. They're poor, and being poor is a trial in and of itself, right? So by virtue of their position in life, the poor are required to look more to God. They just don't have as many options as the wealthy. But the wealthy, the rich, when the rich endure hardship, they often just have the resources to deal with it, to make it disappear, or to cope, or to distract themselves And when that finally fails, 
It's just humiliating and embarrassing. That's where we're at this week. So we're picking up in James chapter 1, beginning, <clears throat> excuse me, beginning in verse 9. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Okay, now when it comes to rich and poor, those categories are pretty elastic, right? They're pretty relative. Do you consider yourself poor? How many of you consider yourselves poor? Questions by what standard, right? It depends. Are we talking about relative to other citizens of Evansville? Or other citizens of Indiana? Or the Midwest? Or America? Or the world? Are we talking about this century or last century? This millennia or last millennia? How many of you have had the experience of traveling outside of the U.S.? Would you rather be poor by American standards or wealthy by the standards of the average country that's not America? It's a pretty easy question to answer, right? So it's relative. But here's the thing that's important. Where do you turn when you're in the midst of a trial? Here's what I think James is teaching us. Whether you're rich or poor, you need to take joy when God exposes your weakness. You need to turn to him with your weakness when he exposes it. Sometimes it's hard for us to remember how truly weak we are. Modern life is full of beautiful, wonderful gifts from God that allow us to mitigate the pain and suffering of this life. And it's incredible. Like air conditioning and indoor plumbing and grocery stores and modern medicine and cell phones. All good things, right? They mitigate the pain and suffering of this life for us. They make things easier. When all of that stacks up, it becomes easier for us to forget how weak we truly are and how vulnerable we are, how dependent on God we are and how quickly things can change, how quickly everything can be taken away from us. We get caught up in the illusion that we're invulnerable. We love our cars. They're convenient. Every time we sit behind a wheel, though, we put our lives and our families and other people on the road in danger, at risk. And that's a risk we don't often feel until it's too late. It's important for us to remember that we're weak and that we're vulnerable. Because all of our stuff, all of the things that make us feel strong, that make us feel competent, that make us feel powerful, that make us feel beautiful, that make us feel in control, our very lives themselves, they're here, and then they're gone. And it doesn't matter who we are. James says we're like a flower in the field. Even the wealthiest and the rich of most, even Elon Musk, he's a flower in the field. We have our day in the spring, and then one day in July or August, the sun rises and we wither up and it's over. 
And the same thing goes for all of our stuff. But we don't feel that vulnerability. And when we don't feel that vulnerability, we're tempted to trust our stuff and our things and ourselves. And so often, whether we're rich or poor, what we think will fix us or our circumstances or solve our problems or at least give us the power to cope with them is stuff. The stuff we have or the stuff that we don't have that we deserve that would solve our problems. What we don't have, what we do. And God says, your life's just a breath. It's a shadow. It's short. And if what you turn to when things get tough is your things, you're going to flounder and you're going to blink. And in the midst of all your pursuit of stuff, you're going to wake up and find yourself standing before God, unprepared. And at that trial, your stuff won't help you. So sometimes God sends us trials to remind us that this stuff doesn't last. Neither do we. This is going to sound stupid, but uh, I don't care because we've been through the sickness that everybody's been through this past week. And so great movie to watch when you're going through the sickness is Princess Bride because, you know, he's sick and it's fun and happy, Right? Good laughs. Laughter is good medicine. Um, <laughs> this thing happened. We get to the, you know, the kissy stuff at the end, and then that dopey Mark Knopfler song comes on, and he's like singing all this 80s sort of love ballad, storybook love. And I had one of those uh, moments of clarity in that moment, and I think probably you know, some of this is just like, ah, I just turned 40 and whatever, where I was just like, man, Amanda and I are in the middle of our happily ever after love story, and I'm halfway to 80, and I'm closer to 60 than to 20, and we're going to (laughs) die. It's going to be over. (laughs) There's going to be a time when we don't get to do the things we get to do now. And, you know, if God gives us another 40 years together, we're going to be those couples that are like, we had fun, it was a good life, and then one of us is going to die, and it's going to be awful. Song of Songs says that love is strong as death. In life, love is about the only competition that death has. Everything else just gets consumed. We forget. We don't put the work in. And God sends us trials. And instead of growing together through them, we're tempted to just sort of one out. That's just the way we're hardwired. When we're under pressure, we want relief. Our whole lives, we've developed these patterns and habits for how to relieve the pain and pressure of our lives. If you suffered as a kid, you have pain responses that are wired deep in you that are hard to undo. You get anxious, you shut down, you go cold, you try to grasp for control, you try to please people, you just run. You look for a dopamine hit. Video games or porn or alcohol or drugs or TV or clicks on the phone or sex or food or shopping, something. For guys, it tends to be, how can I find release or catharsis for all the pressure that I feel? And for the ladies, it tends to be, how can I fill up the emptiness that I feel? And it's some for both of us. But however we come at it, it's easier now than any other time and place in history to just get instant gratification and to counter signal the pain in our lives. The pain's there for a purpose. When we medicate it away, 
we cover the symptoms that point to the bigger problems, the underlying issues. Do I feel bad then? I just pull out my phone. I can play games, I can look at porn, I can get on Amazon, I can, Amazon, I can spend $400 like that, and the packages will start arriving tomorrow, and then I just get a trickle of dopamine over like two or three days or four days. I can look up jobs in other cities. I can go house shopping. I can find the nearest liquor store. I can be there in less than 10 minutes. I can order food and have it delivered to my house, all with, the, with a couple taps or swipes. That's an incredible thing. And there's a blessing in that, but it comes at a cost. And the cost is when we mask the pain, we cover up the underlying issues. And the cost is that we lose our ability to delay gratification and to mature and to grow in our wisdom and our character through the trials that we face. And yet still in God's kindness, there are some trials he sends that can just break through everything and level the playing field, and it doesn't matter who we are. I was talking to somebody last week. Uh, his son was just diagnosed with AIDS. He's in the hospital sick on the brink of death and was diagnosed with AIDS. Good man, good family. One son rebelled and went off the rails. And he's telling me about it. And he's telling me about how his son is so thankful to God for the gift of AIDS in his life. Because he knew that God sent that to him to bring him close to death, to make him face his sin and his rebellion, and to cause him to be reconciled to God and to his family that he had been estranged from. And so dad's sitting there telling me this in awe of how his son was dead, and now he's dying, but he's alive. And God takes the most difficult and awful and miserable things and turns them somehow into the best things. And it doesn't take the pain away. But God breaks through even the hardest hearts through the trials that he sends us. James is writing to believers who have been forced to leave their homes and to leave everything behind because of the name of Jesus. Rich or poor, they just had to get up and go or they were going to die. That's the kind of trial that breaks through everything, right? Now, if you had to get up and go tomorrow, would it be easier if you were wealthy or if you were poor? Probably be on some level easier to have money, right? <laughs> Got resources. But how much would it actually change things? You'd also leave a lot more behind, wouldn't you? Rich and poor, persecution still comes. And it still came for them. And everybody still had things they left behind. So if you're poor, and this is what James is saying, if you're poor and you start low, and you stay low, remember this. Jesus is the high king of heaven, and that's where your treasure is. And it's imperishable. It can't rust. It can't fade. Nothing can take it away. So you have a boast. And that's your exalted position in Christ. Because no matter how low you are, you belong to Jesus, and he is the king of heaven. 
And if you're rich and you start high and God sends you a trial and you have to get low, you remember that Jesus left heaven and gave up everything to get low for you. It's your privilege to be brought low and humbled and to identify with Jesus in his suffering. Because all this stuff is just stuff. It's here today, it's gone tomorrow. And what's the difference if it's taken today or taken tomorrow? Treasure that last is in heaven. Nothing can take that away. So boast in your low position. Because Jesus is low and he got low for us. moving through James. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. Steadfast, enduring, not quitting, not laying down, not giving up. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. So when bad things happen, things that push you to your limit, that require you to step up your game, you're going to be tempted to think, God has done this to me. God has set me up to fall. God has set me up to fail. God put me in a hard position. I can't be expected to survive it. He set me up to fail. He's standing over my shoulder waiting for me to fail so he can say, gotcha, and punish me. So who cares? It's a lie. It's a lie. God's not that way. God has grace for every difficulty that comes into our lives. And he's not tempting us to sin. Now, James says that responding to pain by sinning, that's on us. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it, is, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So here's what happens. When we're under pressure, when we're in pain, when we're in the midst of suffering or a trial, we'll be tempted to turn to stuff, things that aren't necessarily bad in and of themselves, but bad when they're a replacement for turning to God. And we will either show our faith in our character, or we will be carried away by our sinful desires. And that depends on whether or not we will embrace the opportunity to grow or lay down and play the victim and blame God. We blame or we grow. Two options, only two. Knowing that doesn't make it easy because we're each more vulnerable to temptation under pressure. Our instincts kick in. Our old habits, our old patterns kick in. That drive in us that says, I just want to survive and I just want relief and I just want release. So as we begin to feel pain and pressure, we begin to feel anxiety. And if we're not careful, we default to habits for responding to difficulty and pain and trauma that for many of us go all the way back to when we were kids. Patterns of fight and flight, distract, dissociate, go way down deep. When we were kids trying to deal with hard things we didn't know how to deal with. Those patterns are bad. Those bad patterns make us vulnerable. That doesn't mean we're not responsible, though. That doesn't mean we get to blame our parents or the bullies at school or whatever it is, because we're adults. And that vulnerability is in us, and now we are responsible to deal with it. 
And owning that and learning to stay steady, especially in the midst of trials and difficulties, that is how we grow out of those bad habits and into godliness. We all want godliness to be easy. We all are not acclimated to pain or to delayed gratification. But godliness takes time, like everything else in life. It takes work. Every January on the other side of this wall, right over there, are a bunch of people that resolve to bring a lifetime of bad habits into that room, into the gym. And many of them just sort of expect that it'll be easy. I'll just start and the fat will go away and the muscle will come on and it'll be great. And they last a week or two and then they're done. We call them resolutioners. Very few of them persevere because it's actually pretty hard. It takes time. The older you are, the more bad habits you bring, the longer it takes. It takes guts, it takes courage, it takes perseverance to put the work in day in and day out and watch those days accumulate into weeks and watch the weeks accumulate into months. And the changes are so small and incremental, you don't notice them as they're happening. But little by little, day by day, week over week, if you're steady and consistent, if you face the pain and struggle, if you make little change on little change on little change, you grow or shrink or whatever it is that you're trying to accomplish because it all adds up. Every new skill we try to acquire, there's a learning curve. There's pain. You want to learn the piano? You're going to have to learn your scales and you're going to have to practice them and it's going to be hard. If it's a new language, you're going to have to learn your grammar and vocabulary. If it's a sport, you're going to have to learn the fundamentals. It's never sexy. It's just a repetition of basics over and over and over and over again. Pain on pain on pain on pain. And the growth is often imperceptible. But then when it comes to godliness, we all just sort of expect that it's just going to be a magical overnight thing. When it comes to the real work of our lives, of dealing with our past, to dealing with our sin, building a life with another person, building a healthy, strong marriage, raising kids, we just expect it to be easy. And we demand of God that it's easy. And we blame him when it's not. We say, you've made this hard. And we don't have any respect for the sin in our own hearts that is what is making it hard. The difficulty is in us. So we look at the means that God gives us to grow and we say, it's too much, it's too hard, I'm not going to do it. We excuse ourselves, we give in to temptation. We're that way when it comes to our own pet sins. We're that way when it comes to being good husbands and wives and moms and dads. We just expect it to be easy. And we expect everybody else to make it easy for us. So it's a double standard. We expect our husbands and wives and kids to make our lives easy. We have no patience when they don't. And then that excuses the fact that we don't want to lift a finger ourselves and justifies us in our rebellion. If you're not instantly what I want you to be and what I think I need you to be, you can't expect me to be what you need me to be. If you don't make me feel loved in all the ways I want on my terms, I refuse to respect you. You're not worthy of it. If you don't make me feel respected in all the ways I want on my terms, I refuse to love you. You're not worthy of it. 
No grace, no patience, no steadfastness, no endurance, no strength, no discipline, no love. The will to take one baby step at a time, to be steady, to endure, to make progress. That's it. That's the life-changing stuff. That's the difference between being happier in marriage in five years than you ever thought possible and being divorced in five years. You want it all now, so you're not willing to put in the work that will pay off a year from now, two years from now, five years from now, 10 years, 20 years from now. But it's work. You reap what you sow and you never stop sowing. It's only a question of what are you sowing? This is the difference between carving out space for your pet sins and watching them slowly destroy you and looking up one day and marveling at the freedom and victory God's given you over things that you never knew you could be free from. And here's the thing. We all fail the test sometimes, right? We all crack under pressure. We have places where we've given in to sin and felt entitled and felt we deserve the freedom to just indulge ourselves Places where we've drawn the line and said, I have sacrificed enough. I've done enough. I'm over it. God owes it to me now. That mindset is selfish and short-sighted and godless. And when we respond that way, everything gets worse, not better. Everything goes south because sin doesn't just defy God. It hurts us and it hurts the people we love. But we are sinners, so sometimes we fail. And the question is, when we do, are we going to blame God? Or are we going to blame ourselves and get back up on our feet and say, I just need Jesus all the more. I just need more grace. I need more help. I'm not as strong as I thought I was. That's the difference between life and death. Most of the time, being steadfast is just resisting temptation and holding fast to Jesus. It's the first test. Sometimes, like Peter on the water, we take our eyes off Jesus. We start to sink. And then what do we do? We have to repent and return to Jesus. That's the final test. But we, won't, we don't want to be at the final test. We want to pass the first test, right? How do we do that? James says when we're under pressure, when we're in a trial, temptations will present themselves to us. They'll arise from our sinful desires. They'll lure us. They'll entice us. And we begin to think thoughts like, wouldn't it be easy to just walk away? Why work through this when I can take the easy way out? As Christians, we have two sets of desires at war within us. We talked about this as we studied Romans. We have the desires of the flesh, the old us, the us that's entrenched in old sinful habits and patterns that longs for the comfort and familiarity of our old ways. And we have new desires, a new man, put in our hearts by the Holy Spirit, the desires of the Spirit of God. And our job is to, by the Spirit, put to death the deeds of the flesh. The way that happens is we face difficulties, and we face trials, and we face temptations. And when we do, all the stuff inside of us bubbles up to the surface. Our anger, our lust, our impatience, our greed, our desire for comfort and ease. And then we have a choice give in to our sinful desires and feed them and cultivate them or just say no 
We're going to kill them, starve them. We're going to feed the desires of God that lead to life as opposed to the ones that lead to death. So by the Spirit, we set our minds and our hearts to endure and to remain steadfast. We don't blame God for our pain or our problems or our temptations. We cling to Jesus no matter how hard it gets. And that's how we grow. And James says, if we stand firm, we receive the crown of life. When do we get the crown of life? What test do we have to pass before that comes? All of them. We're playing for now or we're playing for eternity. That's it. Sin, the world, and the devil would have you play for now. So we're lured away from the playing field. There's bait. Bait that says, skip the pain and just claim the reward now. We all have the bait that we're most tempted by. The pleasures, the comforts, the sins. Money, sex, drink, the approval of others, whatever it is. And there's a promise in the bait. The promise that it'll feel good, and it will. But inside the bait's the hook. And the hook drags you off to death. It feels good at first. It turns to gravel in your mouth, rots in your stomach, and eventually kills you. And part of the lie we believe is that there really is no joy to be had in our trials, only in avoiding them. James says, no, count it all joy. Blessed is the man, happy is the man who remains steadfast. Because there's a deeper joy and happiness that comes simply by standing firm in the midst of the storm and trusting God and knowing his promises are true and watching him transform us and give us the strength we need to say no. The things we could never say no to without his help. There's joy in knowing that we may not stand in a place of comfort and ease, but we do stand with Jesus and he stands with us. When it's all said and done, we'll still be standing and we will inherit the crown of life. Every sin and temptation promises to be good and to be a blessing, and it's a lie. Every trial, by superficial appearances, looks bad, looks like a curse, like fertilizer. It's ugly, it stinks, it's been through some things. But it is what makes us grow. And there are seeds of God's blessing sown throughout the trials of our lives that grow up and bear fruit in our lives. In love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, Gentleness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. It's not external peace, it's internal peace. It's not external pleasure, it's the kind of character and joy that can face anything this life has to offer. It's the fruit of God's spirit. These are the gifts of our Father in heaven. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Don't be deceived. Don't be tricked. We don't want the cheap gifts of this world. We want the good and perfect gifts from our Father in heaven. Everything in this world, everything around us, all of our circumstances, it can all change on a dime. One minute you're in Jerusalem, part of a thriving church. The next minute you've packed your family, you're on the run. It could happen to you. It could happen to any one of us. One minute you're a happy family. The next minute there's a cancer diagnosis or a car wreck or a layoff at work. But one thing is true. With our Father in heaven, there is no change. There's no turning. 
He remains the same. And he, by his will, called us to be his. He adopted us into his family. He made us his own. He has made himself our father. And that means whatever whatever happens, he's got us. No matter what you're facing, no matter how hard it is. So as you face whatever it is you're facing, and everybody's facing something, right? Everybody here is going through something. Trust God, not your stuff. Hold fast to Jesus. Don't give in to your temptations. Don't look for somebody or something to blame. Don't blame God. Embrace the opportunity to grow with joy because you're being made more like Jesus. And he walks with us through the hard things that we walk through. He's been there before. Let's pray. Father, we do pray this morning that as we consider the places where we have difficulty and pain and where we have responded with doubt and blame, impatience and anger, pray that you would give us grace to repent and give us strength to endure so that we can receive the crown of life. Help us, Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.